I was uh, praying, and I felt the nudging of something behind me. I wasn't sure, but it was John fixing the battery, so I'm appreciative of that. <clears throat> Have you ever wanted to quit? I mean, seriously quit. Throw in the towel. I'm done. I don't need this anymore. Have you ever said that about your job? How about your marriage? How about the unrelenting responsibility of parenting? And even more seriously, how about Christianity, your faith? On an occasion, Ann and I were receiving training, a week of ministry training and encouragement, and we chose a special conference where we wouldn't have to suffer from the weather too much in San Diego. Went out there, and some of our favorite keynote speakers in all the world were there, one of whom was Dr. Larry Crabb, kind of of a previous generation but his books still remain, and he's still kicking. And uh, he's in probably, he's probably in around 80 now. He is honestly one of the best communicators Ann and I have ever heard. Honey, remember going to morning? Oh, devo these devotions where he would teach the Word, and our hearts would just jump on fire. Remember that? And all these books on biblical counseling, PhD in counseling, and from Florida, and teaches at seminaries and all that kind of stuff. Well, Laurie was there, and he was on the top of his game, we thought. We were sitting on a bench, and uh, mid-morning, and along comes Larry. And then I said, you know what? Let's just tell him how much we're using his stuff because he has built so much into us on marriage and parenting that we're transferring to young families, young couples. And so we did. Hey, Larry, we knew him. And so we said, hey, we just got to sit over a minute. We want to tell you something, how God has used you in our lives and in our ministries. And we did. And we just said, thank you. Big old tears welled up in his eyes. I'll never forget it as though it was just this morning put his head down and his head bobbed a little bit from emotion. I said, Larry, what's wrong? He said, Bob, you have no idea. I've been considering quitting this whole deal. Too many hardships, too many difficulties, and not quite enough response. I'm just thinking about quitting the whole deal. And this got used right now to say, stay with it. Persevere, endure. Don't throw in the proverbial towel. Continue to honor me, and the rewards will be great. And the satisfaction on this earth will be great as well. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're ready to throw in the towel. Maybe it's becoming just a little bit too difficult for you in some venue of life. It was for Larry and it was for the Hebrew Christians that comprised the audience in Hebrews chapter 10. Where you see, Christianity was really getting tough. It says in the latter verses of chapter 10 that they had endured incredible things. 
the loss of friendship, of fellowship, the loss of a place to worship, their own possessions. And uh, they even went and visited, uh, not incognito, uh, prisoners, Christian prisoners thrown in uh, to the prison for beating and torturing and perhaps martyrdom. Well, they unreservedly went to be with them and uh, they had quite a track record, but now they're, they're, they're pulling back. And so chapter 10 is essentially an encouragement to persevere when you want to quit. Not just in that day, but in this day. When you want to quit and say, I don't need this in my life anymore, this chapter is for you. And so we're going to look at an overview here of this chapter. And it, it flows real easily in verses 1 to 18. You don't want to forget the sufficiency of your incredible Savior. He has died once for all to bring us to God. He is the veil that has been rent. He is the sacrifice that has been laid down, one and done, as we said last week. Do not forget what he has done in verses 1 to 18. And then next, we're going to go on through that. Let's go on through that, please. Let's go on to the next, uh, not the verses. Let me just give you the outline here. So just stay with me on this, because we're not going to go through all the verses right now. I'm giving you just simply the outline. Don't forget, that's the first thing in verses 1 to 18. And then he says in 19 to 25, do these things. Practice these things. This is what you should do in the midst of a stasis, a static where, where you're not moving. Nothing is changing. You're stagnant. This is what you need to do. Do these things. And they're eminently practical for you and me today as they were in that day. And then thirdly, he says, if you don't, if you defect, if you, if you fall back and drift, as seems to be an operative term in the book of Hebrews, if you do that, then you can choose to do that, but there are serious consequences that God chooses as he will get involved in your life and discipline you in order to bring you back. And that's going to be painful. So the consequences, watch out. And then he says in the last verses, 32 to 39, endure, persevere. For that period of time when you put your trust in Jesus, you were so fired up. Don't be worried about the fire of Nero now. I want you to keep with it, stay on track, keep running on the rails of what God has revealed to you. It will be worth it all. And in fact, I believe the best about you that you will. So that's the order of Hebrews 10. It's a, a lot of verses, 39 verses. We're not going to read all those verses. That would be a little bit too much. But initially, he says, don't forget don't forget Christ, and don't forget the insufficiency of the Old Testament covenant, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Law, given 1,500 years ago. And these are the things he says. I just want to track on these things. In Hebrews 10, uh, in these first few verses, verses 1 through 8, this is what he says. Number one, he says that these that this Old Testament covenant is really just a shadow. It's not a reality. For since the law has but 
for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form, those realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make one perfect, those who draw near. Notice that it's a shadow, not a reality, number one. The other day, Ann uh, stopped me and uh, as I was walking through the uh, family room, and she said, honey, I, I would really... I'd like you to watch this show with me. I said, well, honey, I'm kind of... She said, no, 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 no. I really want you to watch this show with me. So it's only 30 minutes, and I have it on DVR, so we'll cut it down to about, you know, 20, 25. So I said, okay. So I watched Pioneer Woman <laughs> with Anne. And, and I, I have to tell you, it, it was really a good experience. I mean, that other redhead, besides my wonderful redhead, was a, a, an individual who absolutely loved cooking. And everything that she was about to prepare, she said, oh, and this is my favorite. I just can't wait to do this. And so I watched that, and at the conclusion, I was still hungry. <laughs> what I mean by that is, I saw a screen. I still wanted to eat. That's the law. We're seeing a shadow. We're seeing that which is insufficient without the substance. There was no removal of true indebtedness. There was only a covering for the sin, and that's what I want to say next. You could not remove... All right, on, on this, Dave, if we can follow along. It had to be repeated. That's also in verse 1. Let's go back to verse 1 just for a second. Okay, we're, we, uh, we kind of got some things tangled up in the preparation, uh, and so we're going to see a little of that. Imperfect as it may be, we're going to make headway. That which is continually offered every year, every year. Number two, what I have, it has to be repeated. It was only temporary, and it wasn't going to bring an everlasting one-time effect. It wasn't permanent. Number three, in verse three, it could not remove sin. It only reminded them of sin. And verse 3, but in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sin every year. But it's never removed. It's only reminded. Okay, I get it. I'm a sinner. I should not go more than that speed limit. The x-rays have shown what's really going on in my body. I'm reminded of the sin because of the effect of the law. Okay, but in number 4, Number four, in verses four and five, and this is what I really want you to see. There's a purpose in the law. It was external, but it was to drive us to the need for the internal. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin and more, David. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. See that? He sang it in a regimen, in a ritual, ceremonial culture the Jewish culture, the Mosaic law. It is not sacrifices and offerings that I really, heart of hearts, want. What does he want in each of us as well as in each of those Israelis listening, those Jews? He wants an inward work. He wants not the superficial, but the deep within work that only the Spirit of God can do. So the law was never intended to make you perfect on the inside. But God wants you to long for him, even this morning, deep within the inward part of yourself. In verse 5, 
Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired. That's amazing. And then in verse 6, I take no pleasure in burnt offering. What? God, how can you say that? For 1,500 years we've been sacrificing the bulls, the rams, the goats, the sheep, the doves. All of these animals so that we could have access through the priest, only temporary without a total removal, but at least this is what you prescribed. Now you're telling me you don't want these things? What he's saying is, it's not that I don't want these things, but I brought in Christ who is the fulfillment of the greater work that is deep within you. That's what I long for more than anything else. And then also, in verse 8, I take no pleasure. Look at this. You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings. Now, I did a little look on this, a little look-see, on some other verses of Scripture that I want you to see now from the, uh, from the Old Testament. If we can show some of these, 1 Samuel 15. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, I want you to see what God said through Samuel. Samuel said, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices and in obeying the voice of the Lord? To whom did he say that? To Saul, who had compromised. Well, okay, so Samuel isn't back. I guess I'm going to have to step as king into that role of being a priest and sacrifice Samuel says, what is that I hear in the background? The bleeding of sheep? And so I want you to obey me on the inside, says the Spirit of God, not just do sacrifices externally. Next one, Psalm 51. This is probably my favorite one, and I encourage you to memorize this because this will draw you right to the heart of God. I learned it in the New American Standard. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You're not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. What does he want from Bob? What does he want from Anne? What does he want from each of us? Not the Old Testament ritual, but the longing within, the working within of his spirit that brings about Christ's conformity in each of us. That's what he longs for. So even in that kind of a setting where David had sinned grievously with Bathsheba, he's saying, what I want from you, David, is not a period of a year where your heart is hardened and seared until Nathan has to come to you. What I want from you, David, as a man after my own heart, is to understand my heart. And it's not the external, it's the internal. I want you broken and contrite of heart. And then there's Hosea 6.6. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And then Micah 6, 6 to 8. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the high God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams? Look at the look at the high number. Thousands and thousands, is that what is most pleasing? Or is it one heart that is broken and submissive and obedient from the inside to God? Don't compromise, folks. Don't drift. Delight in the Lord on the inside, and that's where you bring great pleasure to our Heavenly Father. Now, the effectiveness of Christ, he also says in verses 1 to 18, starting somewhere around verse 10. And, and he says, the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice. And I just want to run through these for a moment, and then we're going to get on to some pretty serious stuff. This is a little bit of review. And by this, 
And by that, will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all? First of all, Jesus Christ fulfilled the will of God in verses 7 and 9. Now, we don't see that right there, but it says this. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, to do your will, O God. This is Jesus speaking. He has come from heaven to earth, and the, the word is literally prepared, equipped. God has equipped Christ in this, in this incarnate body, this tent of flesh, that he might take pleasure in doing the will of his Father. He fulfilled the will of God in verse 9. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. And he takes away the first, meaning the covenant of old, in order to establish the second, the covenant, the last Adam. And then secondly, he established a new covenant. That's at 9b. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. And thirdly, he sanctifies believers. Thirdly, he sanctifies believers. And that's verse 10. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now, when you hit a verse like that, you look, that's a high and holy word, sanctify. What in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you a clue. The same word for sanctify in the original language of Koine Greek is the same word for holy. The word for sanctify in the original is the same word for saint. Did you know that? Just a simple word of about five letters, agios. And it just simply means set apart. That's all. Set apart, but it's unto God to fulfill what he desires, his purposes, his will for our lives. He's going to transform you and me on the inside by the indwelling spirit to accomplish as we're sanctified to do his work and let his light shine before this watching world. So we're sanctified. That's what it really means. Set apart unto him. And uh, then number four, and this is all I want to say about this long section that says, remember the confession of your faith. There's no need for more sacrifices. In verse 10, By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Look at that. Once for all, no more sacrifices. Done. As we would say in our home, Dunsky. It's over. It's completed. It's fulfilled. He not only lived the perfect life, but he died the complete and satisfying sacrifice as the unblemished Lamb of God. So what is he saying? If you want to persevere... When you want to quit, remember the good stuff. Remember what Christ has done that, is, that has completed you and set you apart unto him. You don't have to go back to that old stuff. It is obsolete, remember? It's used up, remember last week? You don't go back to that. Look at what you've got. Remind yourself so that you don't retract and drift. And then I want to get real serious with you because that's what the author of Hebrews does. He says, but if you have a tendency not to go back to your confession of faith, holding fast that confession, verse 23 talks about, and let me tell you what might just ensue. And these are pretty difficult things. What I'm going to suggest to you is that these are very stern and serious warnings, and they begin in verse 26. If you want to follow along right up here, Verse 26, for if we go on sinning deliberately, 
deliberately making wrong choices, compromising, drifting, retracting, pulling away from the New Testament Jerusalem church and saying, I think I'm going to go back to where there's more comfort and less persecution. Don't really care for the Christian persecution by Nero. He's more accepting of Jewish practice, but not this, this deal called the way from the book of Acts. So I'm going to go back and I'm going to pick this stuff up. If you do that and you make a choice, and I used to tell my kids this, there are a lot of choices that you can make, but you can't choose the consequences. That's where mom and I come in if you're disobedient. And that's where our heavenly parent, God, comes in. He chooses the consequences. And folks, these are pretty serious. If you go back in your drifting to apathy and even the furthest degree of apostasy, where you trample under Christ, we're going to see this, then the consequences are rather severe. Now, on up here, we're going to show you the consequences. There are three in number. There are three in number. And uh, I'm going to say that again until finally they appear on the screen. You catch that. There are three consequences that uh, we're going to see right here in the Scriptures. And we're going to see them. If you go on sinning, knowledge of truth, there remains no more sacrifice for you. And uh, let me just go ahead and read verse 27 to you. but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside, in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. I mean, that's, the Old Testament was severe as a consequence, but in this day and time, what will be severe also, verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant with which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? What does that mean? It means simply this. Thirty years ago when Christ died on the cross to this audience, and in time you, having put your trust in the sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, if you no longer accept that sacrifice as sufficient, as true, as supreme, then you're actually stomping on it saying it's worthwhile. I'm going to disregard Jesus. And you walk back to the Old Testament, all of a sudden you find, "Uh uh-uh, this doesn't work either. This is all done. You have no sacrifice left. You're cooked. But before God, you'll be disciplined. God cares for you. And I want to give you a couple things that, uh, that occur in this. I'll give you three. Number one, it, please notice this. It's not the loss of salvation. That's very, very important to get this. It's discipline. And the word is training and drawing back by duo. It's not the word that uh, means separation from God for eternity. It's actually just God drawing you back through severe means. So it's discipline for your good. So that's what God will do. You're not going to lose your salvation eternal salvation. Understand that, number one. And number two, you will receive discipline, though, in this life. And number three, and in the life to come, there'll be an evaluation of very 
significant evaluation, replete, complete with all of what God can see with that x-ray vision of the video of your life. Jesus Christ will be the judge. In this life, though, there'll be the discipline of God. Maybe you have looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 11 on a particular study you've been involved in. The Corinthians were not exactly tracking for Christ as well as they could have been. They were what you would call sort of fleshly, or the word would be carnal. And so they would even misuse the Lord's Supper. And of course, to Jesus Christ, that is a very, very significant event because it is there that you memorialize, you bring to remembrance what Christ did in his sufficient sacrifice for you. This is how much I love you. I'm dying in your place. You have life as you put your trust in what I did, not in what you do, like going to church, giving money, being baptized. No, it's totally on the basis of what I have done. And when you get drunk at those kind of love feasts, that's literally what it was called, the agape feast, then you are stomping, making fun of, making a mockery of what is so, what is so significant in heaven and on earth. And so it says in 1 Corinthians 11, because of this, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and some of you are asleep. That doesn't mean the condition of hearing a boring sermon. That means some of you have been taken to heaven prematurely out of God's discipline. God has a right to do that because in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, he bought you and me with a price. If you put your trust in Christ, you are his, not your own. He's the manager, the CEO of your life, and he wants you, above all else, to honor exactly what he wants to do and what he has done at the cross. And if you don't do that, there's some discipline for that, all right? And so that's what the Corinthians experienced. So what I want to tell you is don't drift, says the author of Hebrews. Don't retract. Don't pull back. Don't shrink back. With resolve, step forward, and we're going to show you how to do that in a minute. But the third penalty or the third uh, stern word from the scriptures is that you'll be accountable in heaven someday. And that is before Jesus Christ. And uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, you will be judged as a believer in the life to come. Now, judge is a strong word, but it's an accurate term. In Corinth, in that city, they had this place where the magistrates would make decisions, and it was called the Bema. And that Bema is what is translated as the judgment seat of Christ. According to John, somewhere in 26 and 27, the father, because of the resurrection of his son, gave all authority to Christ to actually be the judge, not only at the judgment seat of Christ for believers, but also in Revelation 20 at the great white throne judgment for everyone who's not put their trust in Christ. It is he who will hold us accountable. Now, it's not on the basis of getting into heaven at the judgment seat of Christ. It's on the basis of having get, gotten in heaven, what kind of rewards will we receive based on the way we've lived? And may I say that if these Jews who once started well retract and pull away and drift even into apostasy, not just apathy, and what they can expect is they will get to heaven by the hair of their chinny-chin-chin. I mean, they're going to go to heaven, but no rewards, no proximity to Jesus Christ, no Stephano, no, no crowns, no rulership. Romans 8, 16 and 17 is co-heirs of Jesus Christ. 
And all those things will not be rewarded to them in heaven. Folks, it's worth it to stay the course. That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. So those are three things that are key and paramount for us to understand as they were to these folks in that day. Don't quit. Endure. Persevere. Yes, it's tough. Relationships are tough here. Satan's at work here. My flesh eats me up here, just like yours. But stay the course, and this is what he says to do. And this gets to the more fun part. I know you've been having fun so far, but this is even better. I really like what the author of Hebrews says as uh, he encourages us in verse 22. In verse 22, and just for a few verses, he says, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled. Notice that Old Testament imagery, taking that hyssop branch and sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat. All right, that's what he's talking about. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, as in the laver, the gold laver, bronze laver, I should say. So let us draw near. You see that word, draw near? That's a personal decision. In a moment, I'm going to give you a a public decision. In other words, it involves other people. But for you right here this morning, it's a personal matter between you and God. Are you going to draw nearer to him? You could come to be in a public gathering, but not really in your own heart draw near. You can be sitting there saying, I wonder, is he going to keep going? I wonder, do I really enjoy this or am I just going through the motions? That's not drawing near people. That's just showing up but it's not in your heart drawing near. Are you really going to draw near to the living God? Do you really want to get to know him better? Secondly, secondly, in verses 24 and 25, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near not neglecting to meet together. That's not just in the 9.30 and the 9 and the 10.30 services. It's believers gathering together to grow. Not just know, but to grow. It is essential. God has made us relational. He wants us in a relationship with one another to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near for his return. Let's encourage one another and stimulate one another to grow. We can't do it alone. I have never, let me go on record, for 47 years of being in ministry, on the first day I walked into seminary and worked with junior high kids, I have never seen a believer actively growing in Jesus Christ without the help and encouragement of other believers. If he doesn't go to church or if she doesn't attend church or get in a Bible study, growth is not going to happen. You can't do it alone, isolating yourself. So we need this encouragement. A pretty wise pastor one day observed that this particular fellow that he had known for years was no longer coming to church. He had known this guy for these years as someone who cared for Christ and was growing. In fact, did some really good deeds and gave money, et cetera, et cetera. But for the last number of months, he wasn't coming. So he thought he would just pay him a visit, and he did. He uh, knocked on the door, and 
his church member friend invited him in on this cold wintry day. The fire was in the hearth, and they both sat down, and a few words were exchanged. And then the pastor got some tongs that he saw, went over to the fire, and he grasped one ember that was bright orange and burning, and he removed it from the fire. And he took it and set it right there where it wouldn't burn anything up, but it was right there on the, on the front of that hearth. And the two of them just watched that ember as it was there all by itself. It wasn't too long before they saw the smoldering take its ultimate result, the gray color coming on that ember, and then it just seemed to crumble all by itself. And then the pastor got up without a word, walked out the door. As he was going out, church member said, Pastor, thank you for that fiery sermon. <laughs> he got the point. Embers, in order to be kept burning, need to be next to other embers. And that's the way we are. That's the way God made us. So don't forsake the assembly together. And then it says, interestingly enough, it says, uh, but encouraging one another and all, all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a fascinating term. Let us consider how to encourage one another in the ESV, stimulate one another in the New American Standard, and uh, spur one another on in the NIV. Well, let me, you know, there's so many translations. Let me tell you what the word means. If you're a doctor, if we have any doctors in the audience today, you're going to know exactly what this word is. It's proxmos in the Greek. You know the word, medical nomenclature, proxism. Our English comes from Latin and Greek primarily. And so a paroxysm to a doctor is an involuntary convulsion. I'm giving you the literal meaning. It's a provoking. I was reading in Acts chapter 16 when Paul was on Mars Hill, and he was provoked in his spirit. That means when he saw the Acropolis and all of these temples built to these mythological Greek gods, he was provoked. It caused an involuntary reflux, a, a reaction, like a convulsion. Well, guess what? In a similar way, you and I are to have that kind of a ministry of encouragement with one another. No, no, no. We're not talking about getting people to convulse. That's way too literal. But getting people to respond. Because it's not just about coffee and donuts, folks. Now, look, I, I probably start coming here because of the donuts. I don't know. I mean, I, I love the cake, blueberry, glazed donuts. They're God's will for my life and my wife on a Sunday morning. But, but the point is, that's not what we're talking about. That's not biblical fellowship. It's not sharing donuts, Krispy Kremes, not sharing coffee together. It's being in the Word, talking about what God is doing in our lives and actually causing other people to respond almost with a reaction like, yeah, that's motivating me to get up and move and take steps forward for Jesus Christ. 
That's what the author of Hebrews is saying. So understand fellowship. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Two things, said the author of Hebrews. Don't lose it. If you're going to endure, if you're going to persevere, which literally means to stay under the pressure, abide under. That's literally what it means to persevere. If you're going to do that, you need to personally, from your heart, not your externals, draw near to God. However you do that, come transparently, come humbly before your God. Humble yourselves before God. And secondly, do it with other people who will actually encourage you to grow, not just know. This isn't a head check. It's a heart throb. Man, that's what we need. We need people who will really encourage us to be more like Jesus Christ. And if you follow those two rails, draw near, stimulate one another to love and good deeds, you won't fall back. You'll be moving forward, and you'll hold on to what you've got. In the closing verses of Hebrews chapter 10, you have an assurance in the mind of the author. Verse 32, remember the former days? I knew you guys a few years ago when after being enlightened, look at these Christian expressions, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly of being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulation. And uh, I'm reading from New American Standard. This is ESV. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners, verse 34, and you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Amazing. That's just amazing when I read. Knowing that you have made you for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one, eternal. Therefore, don't defect. Don't retract. Don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. See the point of it all? Are you feeling a little bit like quitting? Are you feeling like, well, it's kind of superficial? Well, God doesn't want it to be there. He wants it to go, you know, kind of like 18 inches from the head to the heart. Kind of want to make, he wants to make that transference. He's an in-depth person who loves you immensely. And he wants to see you taking pleasure in him, with him and as he does with you. He loves you so much. Well, I just want to close with this encouragement to us all. We need each other. We need to encourage each other. If you know of someone that was here but is no longer going to church, no longer drawing near, no longer assembling together, why don't you take initiative? Or if it's just about you and you're feeling like, well, I'm kind of drifting a little bit. Well, why don't you consider getting in a life group in September? They're all cranking up. How about getting in a men's group? Ann and I are firm believers that men need men, women need women. Let's get in some kind of a group where the Word of God, that which is alive and active, is opened up and affects us deeply as the Spirit of God teaches us to become like Jesus and let our light shine before men in such a way that they may see our good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. That's what we ought to be about. We need each other. Now, from my personal experience, I know what encouragement is. I do. Oh, I can remember so vividly being 28 years old. Can you imagine? That's a few years ago. I can remember setting a lofty goal of running a marathon. And I trained by myself. I was in Houston, and uh, I decided, uh, even as a young pastor, I'm going to set a goal because I don't have one to run with in this new area called Spring where we started a church with five families. So I decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do this deal called a, a marathon, 26.2. Never forget the point two. 
If you ever run a marathon, that's significant. So I set the goal, and the Tenneco marathon was up, and I, I'm running. And I'd, I'd put in my miles, long runs, put in my mileage uh, the last five weeks, about 70 miles a week. I know you're looking at this, and you're saying, you know, he's not even wearing a tailored shirt. This is a traditional shirt. What happened to him? I'm not, you know, later I'll explain that. This is called an investment. Okay, so here I am running, and I'm trying this thing, and I have this incredible fear. I really do. It's an overwhelming sense of fear that I'm not going to finish this race. And if anything, it's not all that training. I mean, you don't want to run 13 miles and quit. And the glycogen is used up in your liver at about 20 miles. And so, kind of literally, you're running on guts at that point. I will never forget this. I'm running, and I'm looking at an analog watch. Like, by the way, I have one this morning. You know, the hands deal. And I'm trying to figure out, where am I in this race? And my mind is going quirky on me. It just, it just is not functioning correctly. Everything's fouling up. And, I, and I'm straining. The glycogen is used up 20 miles. And I'm going, I don't know. I don't think I'm going to make this thing. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this guy that I had run with way back when I was an assistant pastor, Jack Lasser jumped in, who had run eight marathons. And Jack said, Bob, you're looking great. Is there another Bob around here? Jack, I'm dying. I am dying. I want to quit. He said, Bob, I can tell you're doing fine. Stay with it. Don't quit. You can do this, Bob. I know you can. Jack, I can't. Let me convince you. And Jack, I don't want to talk about it. I need this wind. I need this air. And I was dying. He said, I'm going to run with you, Bob. And I said, really? You're going to run with me? Okay, Jack. Okay, I'll do it. Let's run. We'll continue to run. And uh, then at the end of the 21st mile, he said, I can't keep up this pace, Bob. I'm not used to running like this. And so he said, see ya, stay with it. So I promised myself, okay, I couldn't read my watch. I promised myself I would do one more mile at a time. One more mile, one more mile until 6.2 miles were complete. And to let you know also, there were girls in front of me, four of them, that were, would get there and I'd be behind them and pictures would be taken. I said, no, that ain't going to happen to live say. <laughs> and so that was a, a prod also. But Jack was the encouragement. It's called rabbiting in running. And he did that for me. And I finished that actually running the last 6.2 miles in a 6.52 pace faster than I did the average for the other parts, the other 20 miles averaging for the marathon. People, I want you to know, I never would have finished that race. I really wouldn't have if it wasn't for Jack. Is there someone in your life that you need to encourage? That you need to jump in and say, you can make it. No, I know it looks bad, but you're not that bad. I'm with you. Let's keep running together. There's someone that's in your life that needs that kind of encouragement. Maybe you need that. And you need to find some other person that, and just say, hey, I need to get with you and talk with you. And they're going to love you because they want to grow and be like Jesus Christ too. People, all of us need endurance. All of us need to persevere. No matter what the circumstances are on our job, our marriage, our parenting, our Christian life, we need encouragement. We need other people. 
First, let's each draw near. Secondly, let's be a ministry to other people. Look around. Look for them as the fall commences. Father, thank you for this great exhortation from Hebrews chapter 10. Thank you for strengthening us and teaching us by your Spirit. Help us to be sensitive to what other people need from us and that we need from other people. But help us to grow at South Spring, to become like Jesus Christ and bring honor to you in the way we have run. And Father, thank you for the rewards you promise us. But more than anything, thank you for the joy of having intimacy with the one who gave us life. In Jesus' name, amen.